Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. We are not about to enter into the fourth industrial revolution. That's thinking small, IoT, connective devices. Our real next iteration is the age of infinite, infinite possibilities and infinite resources that will come about from the exploration of space. And with that, Project Moon Hut is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon. That is a moon hut. Uh, we were given that name by NASA. And it's through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then we're going to turn those endeavors and paradigm-shifting thinking and innovations back on Earth. And we're going to use it to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring an exciting topic. Governance in space will set the direction for humanity over the next 500 years. We have an awesome guest on the line, David Johnson. How are you, David? I'm doing great. Good to be here. David is the managing director of Yeoman's Capital, which is a family office. He has been active in the blockchain. He's active in space. He's actually invested in over 40 startups within and outside of the space industry. And I'm excited to get started. So let's just start with, do you have bullet points or do you have an outline that we can start to work with? Sure. I've got five bullet points and then some notes at the end. Okay. So why don't you give them, give them to me? Uh, number one, the history of governance. I got to tell you, my mind already went, oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Number two. Number two, the Outer Space Treaty. Number three. Yeah. Three. The Space Competitiveness Act. Competitiveness Act. Number four. The Artemis Accords. And number five. Uh, first companies and distributed organizations. So let's start with number one. Sure. Um, effectively, I want to talk about how critical governance is and start with the fact that precedents are amazingly powerful and tend to propagate out over time um, in the way that they start. So once you've started something, it tends to follow that trajectory, right? And I want to use the example wait, that- so, so wait, so just to be, slow it down a little bit. So sure. what you're saying is once we find a point, that point becomes the origin of the future. Yes, okay. exactly. Like I use, I use the example with you, why are we speaking English? I don't know about your ancestors, but most of mine didn't speak English. Right. They were, you know, Scandinavians or in, you know, Central Europe. You know, I've got maybe five or 10 percent of my heritage from you know, English speaking countries. And I would offer to you the reason you and I are speaking English today in this conversation has mostly to do with a hundred and four people who showed up on a shore in a beach in Virginia in 1607 and the language and governance and common law and everything that they brought with them and all of the people that followed them in to setting up the first settlements in North America is why we're here today speaking English. So I never even knew, I didn't know there were 104. So that's a, I didn't know there were 104. So that's an interesting fact. That's, so they, that's, that tells you how few people it takes to set the original network effect. Like I would argue those 104 people have had a greater impact on human history than almost anybody since, right? 
the fact that North America, you know, is common law and English speaking, you know, and has, you know, independent judiciaries and free speech and all these things that came out of those 104 people showing up. And what I like to point out is it doesn't have to be good precedents. You know, a hundred years previous to that, some conquistadors showed up in South America yeah. and they brought a very different set of precedents around nobility and around, you know, uh, a different uh, Catholicism instead of Protestants. You know, all of these things have propagated in South America that have created very different outcomes from the people in North America over time. Even though if you went back to 1500, you would figure that South America would be by far the better developed, right? They had gold, they had resources, the, you know, settlements took place way before uh, in South America and the Caribbean, before they did in North America, where effectively it was farming and uh, sort of very commoditized things. But the precedents that people brought in North America were so much more powerful. You've seen the GDP, the standard of living, all of these outcomes, you know, sort of play out over time, right? And you think of all the people that have lived in North America since that point, effectively those 104 people affected billions of lives over time in an enormous way, maybe even more than they really understood at the time. No, no, of course they didn't understand at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe they thought they were doing something important, yeah, but, you know, to imagine were... how far it's gone, you know. No, they, the implications of the, that decision to get on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria and to go across the oceans uh, is very different. It does have an impact, but I doubt they were thinking of billions of people. Sure. So, yes, so I can say I, I would agree with you, and I can. my mind was racing whether that be Chinese doctrine, it could be Indian doctrine, it could be explorers that were the, um, the Vikings and each different iteration of people or activity creates a new future. Right, exactly. Because it could have been the Chinese. They had much larger ships. They were doing big exploration a few centuries earlier in 1200, 1300. They may basically got all the way to almost South, South Africa, right? They nearly <laughs> rounded uh, the Cape and discovered Europe instead of the other way around. But those ships were sent by a emperor, by a monarch, for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. They were going and finding, you know, giraffes and wild animals and meeting new peoples, and they were bringing these treasures back, but they weren't involved in commerce. They weren't, think, weren't, they also, weren't they also in the belief that they were sharing as compared to the British who were conquering? Mm, right. Yeah, there was definitely a different perception, but ultimately it wasn't sustainable because there weren't lines of commercial revenue coming from those activities. So as soon as the emperor changed, the next emperor burned the ships and said, we're just going to focus on China. Okay. And so there was no more exploration, right? And instead, what happened in history is instead the Europeans, you know, um, turned around and, and came and found found, as that were, uh, all the other countries in the world, right? So yes, it, it can go well or it can go poorly, but I have effectively proposing to you that we're at that critical time again, right? Mm -hmm. All the places on earth have been discovered. All the people are known, the states have claimed territory of every square inch of the earth. And we've been in this sort of 
uh, waiting period where there's no new frontier, right? For people that want to, you know, uh, in the case of uh, the British that came to North America, some of them were es escaping religious persecution. Some of them were just looking for a better opportunity. You know, there was land and resources in this new world. We're about to enter that phase again, right? Okay. And I can't emphasize enough that I think this is the most important period for humanity because as we step into this new frontier, whether it's the moon or Mars or the asteroids, the first people that get there and set up that settlement, everybody else is just going to follow in on those precedents because they want to survive, right? Infrastructure is very difficult to set up, right? The people that followed in in Jamestown, there was something like 15,000 colonists that came, to, or 10,000 colonists that came the next 15 years after they originally landed, right? And they followed in on those precedents, right? Even though you had waves of immigrations of other cultures and other nationalities after that, they effectively adopted the dominant network effect at the time. Right. So it didn't matter if you're immigrating from Ireland or Germany or Poland or wherever, you know, once you showed up and all the systems were set up in English and in common law and in all these other things, you just went with it. Right. Would, would you, would you, we're looking at, let's say the moon or the space between the moon and earth. Might we have multiples, not as equivalent to history? So someone goes, uh, they, the Indians go to the moon and they set up their, their location. The Chinese go to the far side of the moon and the Americans go to tranquility. So could we mirror what has happened on Earth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and that gets into the second point with the Outer Space Treaty. If you want okay. to jump into that. No, if, if, if you've got more on the history, then continue with it. I just had a question that uh, if you're going to answer it later, that's fine too. So I, I'll, I'll finish up with the history of governance saying that, yes, these are competitive systems. And, you know, at the same time that the English were landing in Virginia and to your point uh, later up in the Boston area in Massachusetts, you know, with the, uh, you know, the Pinta and the Santa Maria and, and all that, you know, they the, the French were showing up in New Orleans and the French were showing up in Canada and, you know, the Russians were headed to Alaska and the Spanish were in Florida and uh, Mexico, right? Yeah. So all of these are competing systems. Um, but in the end of the day, I think people pick systems that are, are most beneficial to them, right? And so what we've seen is sort of the success of a society based on GDP, you know, child mortality, life expectancy, all these things has done a lot better in North America, especially in the U.S. and Canada, largely because of those early precedents uh, that people brought. When so, they first I, um, I don't know enough of the history, so you sound like a history buff. Yep. When you take on the introduction of the Russians, you take on the French in the New Orleans or any other uh, development that happened in North America, you could probably also go back to the governance or the policies within those countries as to how much capital they put behind it, how valuable they see the opportunity. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of other variables than just who landed that created the English-speaking model, governance model 
uh, British model that we had uh, as an orientation to start. Oh yeah, right. abs absolutely. Um, okay. You know, the fact that, you know, the different monarchs were, uh, you know, interested in territorial claims in those uh, jurisdictions was the spark, right? Initially it was gold and that was the Spanish and the Portuguese things. They came for riches, right? Let's go find the gold. Um, and that was their initial focus. And then over time it become, well, let's get as much territory as we can. So that was the initial you know, sort of reason, but largely as it went, they became sustainable because of the value created in those places. And over time, the value in those places, which much greater than the support they were getting from their original country. I mean, so much, right, that within a few hundred years, the U.S. had formed its own governance, you know, had the revolution largely because they didn't feel they were getting their, their rights uh, respected when it came to representation um, and thought that they should they should get that and broke off from the main country even though Britain was by far the most powerful country in the world at the time there were enough people in this new jurisdiction that they could sort of assert their their own rights so yes I think that's the original spark but it had huge effects of those first people uh, that showed up and the way that they set things up has sort of propagated over time. So one last thing I'll cover on this is um, homesteading. Homesteading, I would propose to you, is one of those important things that was set down early on in North America versus South America. So are you pretty familiar with homesteading? I am, but let's just give the clarity of what homesteading is because of the global audience. Sure, so in, in North America, especially in, in the US, um, you had this unique situation where the diseases that the Europeans brought wiped out something like 99% of the indigenous population, right? Smallpox and these things had a devastating effect on, on Native Americans, right? So as Europeans would move into these areas, either the tribes would move out themselves, um, you know, or there would be conflict, but often it was disease that would uh, drove most of the Native American populations out. So as you had the Native population receding, effectively the uh, governance and the jurisdiction said, okay, if you show up as a farmer and you, you know, cultivate some land, let's say for five years, you can have that, you know, uh, 100 acres or 640 acres. It depended on the, on the place and the time. But effectively, you were establishing first property rights by mixing your labor with nature. Okay, you showed up on that piece of land, you know, you cut down the trees, you set up a farm, you put up fences, uh, you built a road, etc. That became your ownership. And so most people in North America owned property, right? Or at least the privileged Europeans that, you know, were under this system. Uh, whereas we look at South America, there was a lack of homesteading and much more uh, precedence from you know, the 1500s where the nobility and the conquistadors said, all the land is ours, the rest of you are peasants, and you live at our leisure, right? Um, and that has had a huge systemic effect over time. In North America, still most people own their own house. Most people have property. In South America, it's only one out of 10 people. So it's an ownership society, versus a renting society. And that has huge effects on wealth. Most of people's wealth in the US is from the ownership of their home. 
you take that out of the equation, they are 80% less wealthy if they weren't owning their own homes. So those type of things have big effects over time on prosperity. And that was set so early on by expectations coming from, from British common law around homesteading yeah. and then adapted for the frontier in the US. So the, I, I understand the singularity of focus when you say history of governance and the landing and, and the homesteading. I think in my mind, what I'm doing is I'm actually tying many other variables very quickly to this formula. For example, you land in New Orleans, it's hot, there could be more challenging weather conditions, the land is not as usable in cases if they didn't go north enough. When you landed in Virginia or you landed up in the Boston region, you ended up with a, uh, a very fertile land. You had access to ports that were easy, it wasn't as difficult to get to having to go around the Florida Keys. So you had a governance model, you had geography, you had a dominating British uh, empire. There were a lot of favors that led to that, the example you've been given, leading, the, uh, leading us to speaking English and the other billion people we've influenced. Right. Well, they certainly had some of those advantages, and there's certainly happenstance of history. Napoleon needed money, and he sold the Louisiana Purchase, right? The U.S. made the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon for rock-bottom prices because he needed money for his military campaigns in Europe, right? So certainly there's some of that, but I think more that was a recognition that the English-speaking groups were already sort of starting to encroach in that territory, and he didn't have the money or power to fight it, and so rather cash out uh, than try to fight that. But I would point out, when the Jamestown colonists showed up, it was not easy. They picked a, yes, a easy-to-access spot from the water, but it was brackish water, so it was a mix of salt and fresh water. They showed up during a 700-year unprecedented drought just really bad luck. And most of the original people died. There was only about 38 survivors after the first winter. Like they had a very hard time uh, initially establishing agriculture because of, of the lack of water, but they held on just enough, right? And you know, you had more colonists show up in, in Boston in the years uh, after, and then everybody followed in. All the immigrants, uh, Matt, you know, sort of gravitated towards uh, that point that had been established and were able to follow in and more broadly establish themselves. But it certainly wasn't easy. And I think we're going to see parallels of that in space. It's going to be risky. It's going to be dangerous. We want to do a little better on the food planning this time. <laughs> because, because I'll tell you, my personal goal in life is to be one of those hundred people is to be involved in setting these fundamental precedents in governance whether it's on the moon or Mars, I think it's that important that I'm willing to take that level of risk. Like th that's literally my inspiration since I was five is like, wow, I'm going to be right about the right age when we start settling space. I would love to be on that first boat. Not, not the explorers that go and visit and, you know, plant a fat flag and take, take a photo, but the first people that stay. That's what I want to be in. See, don't, isn't it amazing that we met? So you get to be with Project Moonhut, help us with governance, 
tie the world together and achieve this. We're going to help you get there. Beautiful. It's all us. It's all us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I believe it. I believe it. And that's part of why I've I've barely slept since we last talked. Like you you asked my wife, I've been talking nonstop about, well, I think I should talk about this and cover that and lead it (laughs) in this linear progression. And she's like, "Uh uh uh-huh. She's she's heard this, you know, since we were, I mean, you have to understand a condition of me marrying her was that she'd be willing to move to space with me. Oh, wow. I literally, we put that in our marriage contract, like it's literally written and signed, like that was the prerequisite. So, so my marriage contract says that whenever I talk like you do, she gets to turn it off. <laughs> so she was able to put in devices that whenever I'm talking, yes, 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 yes. But an hour later, didn't hear a thing. So I don't know. We weren't, we've got two different models going, but they're still there. And yes, we had a phenomenal first conversation. So I'm glad that you brought up some of these points. I really love your knowledge of Napoleon and needing the money. I had never heard that. So I didn't know that the Louisiana Purchase was predicated on a need for capital uh, for Napoleon. I also didn't know, I knew it was difficult for the Jamestown individuals. Was, I, I've, I've shared how difficult it was with individuals when I talk about Project Moon Hut and that need for creating an ecosystem, which is part of the original story with Bruce Pittman and the day in which Project Moon Hut was created. But what I didn't know was the data behind it, the 700-year-old drought, the salt and freshwater challenges, and the, the uh, structure behind the 38 survivors and the rest coming. So this is a perfect fill-in for the narrative that I, I absolutely love. So you were, you were spot on with your wife telling her, this is the line we want to take. <laughs> absolutely. No, no, I think, it's, I think it's that important. And you get, you know, we're so lucky to be alive when the human species moves from its home planet to other planets, to other celestial objects. Like that only happens once, right? There's been life on the planet for billions of years. And you and I just happen to be alive in the single generation where that will happen. You know, I am, I am amazingly fortunate and, and glad to be alive when I am. Oh, um... I, I can't say much to that. We had nothing to do with it. Yeah, just just the just, ovarian lottery, as uh, Buffett would call it. Yes, that's exactly it. So anything else to add to the history of governance that would tie into the future? Well, I mean, I think we've covered pretty well uh, some of uh, the history along the way. You know, I think over time, you know, you saw later on uh, the United States bought Alaska from Russia. You had, you know, uh, some, some wars with the Spanish that got uh, Florida, et cetera, et cetera. So there's sort of a lot of, of, of history in there. But what really I think is most interesting is the, the best things that people wanted came to the new world, right? The idea of free speech um, had existed for a long time, but it was very limited in the jurisdictions that people left. But when they came to a new, fresh jurisdiction, they said, no, 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 no. We want that enshrined in the base constitution, right? And we want the right to defend ourselves. And we want the right to privacy. And we want the right to a fair trial. Like that wish list 
gets written with every new jurisdiction. And so as we think about establishing the next 500 years where there may well be more people living in space 500 years from now than live on Earth, right? If you just look at the resources and territory available and, you know, model that out, just like there are people, you know, an equivalent number of people in North America to, to Europe today, right? As we think about impacting that many billions of lives, what is our wish list? What are the things that we say, no, 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 we really have to have that enshrined this time because things went off the rails here or things went off the rails there. I, I read this morning in the South China Morning Post, I'm trying to pull it up. That's only because I've lived in Hong Kong. It's one of the papers that I would look at. They made an interesting comment about the conflict that's going on, the protests that have been going on first in 2015 while I was there, again last year while I was there. One of the challenges that they said was the Hong Kong people had, are now uh, in the past several months have had to make choices. They look at China and they say it's a single party system. It is controlling, it is, uh, they're using data and statistics to be able to monitor and they limit rights in certain places. But then what they said, which is interesting, and they said, and then the Hong Kongese are looking over at the United States and saying, you have guns being walked into government places, people being shot almost every day in, uh, not every day, shot because in schools you have a disease that has completely spread across the United States with lack of leadership in a two-party system. And the paper came to the conclusion that even with both of those, they said, boy, they're both not very good. Mm. And I, th I said to myself, because we were talking about governments today, wow, I never had looked at the United States, even though I do look at it, with such malice, with such bad vantage points, because Hong Kong, you could walk at two o'clock in the morning as a man or a woman and be safe all the time. You had rights to be able to make choices. You had unbelievable infrastructure. You had all of these opportunities that I felt that these individuals felt in this article that they had two evils to choose from. Mm. And the way you were just describing it was such a positive. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe this governance in this new 500 years might need to be rediscussed. Right. This is that discussion. And this was really well discussed in the case of the US in the Federalist Papers, right? We sort of have a dialogue that took years where people debated these kind of questions. And you get the famous quotes around, you know, security versus freedom, right? Security versus liberty, right? The famous quote from Franklin, you know, the person that, you know, uh, sacrifices uh, liberty for security uh, gets neither or deserves neither, right? And sort of where, where do you err? Do you err on the side of security? and risk authoritarianism and you know domination by a small number of parties or do you err on the side of liberty and know that people are gonna make bad decisions and i would say err on the side of liberty let's look at the war on drugs and the complete failure of the war, war on drugs as an example right here's an effort to protect people from themselves just like prohibition 
right, was an effort to protect people from themselves. Drinking is bad, causes all these horrible side effects, let's make alcohol illegal. Okay, well, people didn't stop drinking. And what it did was create a black market where violent people, cartels and mafiosos, were providing that product at a huge markup instead. And what you had was this wave of violence across the US. And so they repealed prohibition, right? And we're slowly repeal repealing drug prohibition at this point after it's ruined millions of lives for effectively victimless crimes, right? So, you know, I think we can look at those lessons and say, you know, as well intentioned as the let's protect people from themselves uh, things can be, um, you know, the, the truth is it's, it's usually driven by capital. My, my friend Brian Deary uh, calls this the Baptists and bootleggers problem. So there's always the front, which talks about, you know, the good reasons, the moral reasons we have to do something, but then the behind is the, the money reason, right? Whether it's the prison industrial complex or the military industrial complex, you know, um, the front facing thing is let's protect people, you know, think of, think of security. Um, but the reality is that usually shows up as large uh, expenditures to secure that security and that money's going to somebody, you know, in the case of wars, it's, you know, all of the contractors that build out the bombs and the war machines and everything else. In the case of, you know, uh, the criminal justice system, it's police, right? I, I don't know if you're familiar with as, uh, civil asset forfeiture, for example. Uh, I explain it the way you would like to define it because I'm loving your explanations. So, so civil asset forfeiture is where um, the cops will seize money, usually cash mm -hmm. or property yep. before there's been any conviction because it's presumed usually to be involved in drugs. Like so the cars that are taken or yes. boats that are taken. Yes. Or you had a briefcase and it had $50,000 and it is effectively illegal in the U S anything over $10,000. They presume the money is guilty long before there's any uh, trial. If you're, you know, or even arrest, you know, we're just going to seize this money and you come prove to us that it's not involved in illicit activity. And that's a very long process. And the problem is the feds and the local cops split the money. They get half and half usually. And so the feds get half the money and the, the cops, you know, the local basis gets money. But the civil asset forfeiture has gotten so bad in the United States, it was something like $14 billion last year. Wow. Taken in civil asset forfeiture. And if you're the little guy, you're never seeing that money again. Doesn't matter if you're guilty or not. Yeah, you've right. stuffed money under your bed because you're trying to be careful with it. And oh, then, yeah. There, then they there's, found out and they were in trouble. Yeah, yeah. There's terrible stories of, you know, uh, you know, there's cultures, especially Indian and Chinese culture, where they're big on cash and they're going to make a house purchase and they get pulled over for a speeding ticket and the cop takes a hundred grand out of the briefcase in the back when they were going to go put on the down payment. Right? Yeah. That kind of stuff. I mean, you got to understand, $14 billion. That's a lot that's, of cash. That's all the burglaries in the United States combined. So the state in this, in this sort of abuse of power and the, the Supreme Court is finally looking at, you know, kind of reining this back in, but this has been going on for decades, right? So it's been 30, 40 years of, of abuse of the civil asset forfeiture law, right? And they're, they're finally looking at reining back in, but effectively you've had the state become the predator that is doing more damage than the supposed criminals and burglaries they're trying to stop. So right? you're, so the premise that you're using here when it comes to space is that you believe that there 
there's a modification, a middle ground, and a completely alternative approach to governance? Yes. The, okay. Exactly. So, and, and we have to know this history and say, where do we err? Because it's imperfect. Governance is a very, very hard problem. But where do you err? And I would say error on the side of liberty, error on the side of freedoms. Over time, you get a much better outcome, right, than you do going towards emergency orders and restrictions on free speech, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And we can get that more into that more on like point number five when we get to, you know, what does that mean? Is it, does it mean open source? Does it mean individualistic? Does it mean voluntary systems? Does it mean opt in, opt out? I want to get into all of that, but you know, if you're ready, we can jump into, we can into jump to, let's go to number two then, because I, what I was trying to do when listening to you was get, without saying it, get to an understanding of how you're thinking about laws and doctrines. And I know it was very American centric and that's why I brought in Hong Kong so that we can look at it from a global scale that decisions being made in any governance model has challenges. And I wanted to hear how you were approaching it from a, a mental perspective. So that's what I was attempting to do. Right. So let's go to this uh, outer space, outer space treaty. Okay, so Outer Space Treaty enacted in uh, 1967, right before the moon landings, effectively is the international law today when it comes to space. And one of the main things that it set out is said, look guys, we're not having another colonialism, we're not having another territory grab. I don't care if Russia or America lands on uh, the moon first, neither of you get to claim the moon. Right. And so the Outer Space Treaty, which the U.S. and Russia and most of the major powers sign on to, says that countries cannot claim a celestial object as part of their territory. So this sort of set the basis. Right. So we put, planted an American flag on the moon, but the U.S. government didn't say we now own the moon. It's now the 51st state. Right. Um, they didn't do that. Right. And that's because they agreed to the Outer Space Treaty. Now, the treaty was fairly silent on all things private companies. Right. And so it's not until much later that we have this revolution with SpaceX and Blue Origin and all these private companies are now leading the way in space. They're the ones that are going to get there, there first. And so the governments are trying to figure out what does that mean? Uh, for the rules and governance, right? But this has created a really interesting opportunity because you'll notice in the first point, I picked the word governance, not government. No, yeah, and, and Project Muna, if you notice that in the video, it's governance. Yep. It is yes. not government. I, I don't know if you noticed that when I was talking yep. in the model. It is governance because that is how we govern. It is not government. Absolutely. Right. And because I'm, I'm pointing that out because I interpret the word government as the monopoly state, as a monopoly on rulemaking, on courts, and on the use of force, right? Whereas governance is something you can opt into voluntarily. You know, when I'm signing a contract, when I'm joining a homeowners association, when I'm doing any of these things, I'm involved in governance, not necessarily government. And I really want to emphasize that because I think that will lead to the greatest prosperity in the future is a focus early on on setting the right governance versus having it beset by government. And we actually have that opportunity thanks to the Outer Space Treaty. 
because the governments are on the sideline. They're, at least so far, agreed not to go and claim territory and try to make it part of their nation state, right? So we've got this open space, you know, no, pun, pun not intended, yeah. we've got this open space where we can, you know, effectively think through and have that discussion about what are the best things we've learned on earth that we go and then take and put in space, right? Do we want that governance to look like, you know, governance in the US or in China, or I would say in the case of something like Switzerland, right? Where we've seen which models have produced the greatest prosperity on earth and take the best of those models and put them into the governance in space, right? And so that takes me to the Space Competitiveness Act, point number three. Can you, can you uh, just for the, because I like the way you're approaching this, can you outline a little bit more of the few points in the Outer Space Treaty and your interpretations of them? That to me is, is the most critical one. Um, I mean, the treaty is, is pretty broad ranging. Um, you know, I've read it a few times and there are chapters on sort of how do you coordinate, how do you, you know, uh, respect, you know, other people's satellites and other, you know, other uh, effectively, how do you coordinate with, with other people um, without establishing that territory uh, to say we're going to, you know, you know, go to each other's aid. A lot of this is informed by maritime and international law, law of the sea, if you will right? Because these ships are very much um, using a similar model, right? It's about, you know, informing people where you're going so they don't run into you. It's about, you know, reporting, um, you know, where you're going to be so there's not a safety accident. You know, oh, I, SOS, I need help, you know, come and rescue me, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think we're going to see, and we've seen so far, a lot of those precedents from um, maritime really inform this jurisdiction that is emerging because it's really one of the few places on earth, the seas, the oceans, where there aren't territorial claims, but you have ships moving into interacting in international waters, right? Um, and so there's, there's a lot of good content in there, uh, but I've really focused my research on the aspects when it comes to uh, government and private industry, and it's largely silent on that question of private industry. Do you, um, do you believe in, and this is a subjective or objective question, do you believe that governments at this point with nationalism at its heightened level where things are really moving in that direction and probably for an extended period of time, that's my opinion, do you believe that governments will honor this treaty? Yes, though... That's going to get into point three and four. Okay, is, so, so let's get on to three yes. and four. And the, good thing, the good thing is I'm asking you the right questions. Yes, you're, you're perfectly in line where, where, where this evolves, right? So uh, number three, Space Competitiveness Act. This was passed under Obama in 2015 as supported by planetary uh, resources and deep space mining and um, – Google and other supporters of the effort basically said, hey, let's have the U.S. government make clear that if a company goes and mines an asteroid, it owns that property, 
right? This is a way of saying we interpret the Outer Space Treaty doesn't speak about companies. We're going to clarify and say that U.S. companies can claim property that they mine in space. They can't claim the asteroid, but if they, they mine something off the asteroid, if they remove it, right, uh, then they've homesteaded that, that material, if you will, and they, they can then claim property rights on that. So you can now invest billions of dollars in an expensive space operation and know that you have those property rights recognized by the U.S. government. Um, a few years later, Luxembourg passed a similar law. It's one of the big uh, centers of excellence in Europe. They do a lot of the satellite and orbital uh, stuff for the European satellites. And so they passed a very similar law. I've, li I've lived in Luxembourg, so yes. Oh, cool. Uh, they were... They were very smart. They showed up in the, I think it was the 70s, and there was a bidding process for geosynchronous, uh, geosynchronous orbits. And they bid and bought up like a lot of the rights to the geosynchronous orbits before uh, commercial satellites started really rolling out. And so that put them at the center, Luxembourg at the center of sort of European uh, space development, right? And still very much is today. Um, and so we now have effectively the two main jurisdictions, the European jurisdictions, the U.S., both recognizing that private companies can go and get material and they have ownership of it. Did, did they, did uh, the well, European Union is one thing. There are a lot of countries that don't uh, exist within that framework. Do they all follow the Space Competitiveness Act? Have they said we sign on to it in theory, or have they signed on it legally? No, um, the Space Competitiveness Act was an act of the U.S. Congress, so it really only applies to U.S. companies. But given how concentrated the aerospace industry is in the U.S., um, something like 70 to 80% of the world's aerospace companies are in the U.S. And after that, it's the U.K. and really just a couple of other players. It effectively set the tone. And the Luxembourgian law was uh, very similar in tone and effectively is, is the center of the European Space Agency uh, efforts. Um, I don't think the EU has passed, or at least I haven't seen it, uh, comprehensive regulation. But, you know, they effectively, uh, I, I believe they're going to follow some of that precedence. But that sort of gets into the next question of, of point number four. They're, they're trying to get into setting what are the international standards everybody's going to agree to as far as this goes. It's an, it's an, my mind jumped when I first visited Deep Space Industries, which was on NASA Ames facility right around the corner from where I was working or been working with the NASA team. I walked in and I saw this probably 600 square feet, um, 60 square meter place. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow, not much here. Uh, when I took the tour of NASA, okay, some of these are interesting. When I was in Luxembourg and I went to the space agency, I also had that same feeling that these organizations have a lot of maybe political clout, have a lot of uh, press or, um, how do I say it, uh, communal, community influence. Mm -hmm. But are they as strong as we make them out to be? Is Luxembourg as strong? Uh, I spoke at the Space Forum, I think it was, in Luxembourg. And two, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Two years ago, there were 
500 people in that audience. They were excited and they were excited because I believe the number was, and don't quote me, they put 18 million into Planet Resources and Planet more or less folded and so did Deep Space. We could say they were bought, but they were bought because they weren't going anywhere. And they were brought into another organization so that I think so that they didn't look like they failed. Luxembourg, when I spoke, they told me 500 people would be in the audience and there were maybe 75 to 100, even though the rest of the conference had thousands of people attending. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as powerful as it was. So do you believe these organizations, these statements, these conditions actually make for as much of a strong foothold? I think the backers and the people that are interested long-term, like, let's be very frank, I think it's the um, weight of Google, which was an investor right, in, uh, I think, planetary resources um, was, were, were the people that had the lobbying power to get the Space Competitiveness Act passed, okay. right? And it didn't, it's no skin off the nose of the existing aerospace industry. I mean, this stuff is so far out, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, you know, Lockheed and Boeing aren't, aren't bidding on any contracts. It doesn't affect them. So, you know, I think it was a time where people were like, yeah, you know, let's give clarity. Then people uh, can move forward on this. But it's still so early. Like you said, you know, uh, those companies, you know, were, were very small. They were little startups. Yeah, and it's really a test. Yeah, it was a testament to the people just that they were able to get a law passed at all. Um, based on the earliness. But I think it was recognized that if you didn't give this legal clarity, you weren't going to get past the startup phase. Right? Okay, I, I, would, I would agree. What, it, what they did was they brought the topic to the top of the pile. Yep. Let's at least discuss this. Let's set some framework. We can renegotiate. We could talk about it later. However, right now, we need something to guide, at least in the U.S. to start, decision-making venture, or let's just call it banking, investment banking into the industry and entrepreneurship that could follow suit. The same thing Luxembourg is giving Europe and the European Space Agency and other groups within that framework, the ability to say there is a worthwhile prospect here and at least the general consensus today is that this will be honored. Right, because we're gonna get to the second wave, right? the capabilities that SpaceX and Blue Origin, you know, are, are building are so much larger than was available five or 10 years ago, as far as capacity loss satellites, as far as, you know, the space, you know, the Starship that they're building south, you know, a few hours south of me here in Texas, you know, uh, is going to be able to carry a hundred people, right? That's an, inc that's a Mayflower class ship, right? It's not a little schooner. It's not two or three guys. The shuttle could handle six or seven. We're talking about a vehicle that can handle a hundred people, right? So the second and just common, just for people who are the Mayflower is was a ship that helped to found and create the United States. Just right. Bring that in there so that not everybody will know what the Mayflower is. And but it's and a these, Mayflower class ship. Was big enough, strong <laughs> enough to be able to do it. Right. And these were ships that could handle about 100 people, right? They weren't huge. You know, they were actually small for the time. You know, the Chinese a few centuries earlier, their huge ships were taking 500 or 1,000 people before the emperor burned the fleet. And really? The country. Yeah. No, these were, these were small compared to the 
the the empire of of China was most of the world economy along with India back then. But I and, never knew I never knew their ships could handle a thousand well, people. They're, they're huge. They're huge. You can see the graphics online that compare the two. And you know, here's the tiny little Mayflower you know ship, and the, here's the huge imperial ships, right? But it's the difference between the state though it wasn't sustainable, the state could afford to do these giant projects. Whereas the Mayflower was a small community. It was almost like a church community, right? These were, you know, Puritans that were, you know, coming to the U.S. for, you know, or to the, the new world for, for new, you know, religious freedoms, right? They didn't have huge backing. You know, they, they had some commercial ambitions and they were going to, you know, sell crops and commodities and all the rest. But, you know, they were very small operations, Right. But that that spark of being able to go to a place where you could have access to these resources where all the land wasn't claimed. Right. Because of the uh, the disease issue we talked about, you know, all of a sudden people in Europe who are cramped and, you know, had no opportunity could come somewhere where they could have opportunity. And we're going to see that again. So this second wave is going to be a lot larger uh, than those first pioneers uh, like deep space and like planetary resources that ventured out of way, way ahead of their time. Right. So. Okay. Fantastic. So the space competitive act, good. Next yep. point. Yep. Uh, Artemis Accords. So this has just come out and really the details aren't even fully available yet, but the U S administration is putting forth these Artemis Accords around uh, the moon, right? Because we're getting close to going back to the moon. Right, we're only a few years out of the uh, Starship uh, and other vehicles being able to take people back and set up uh, settlements. You know, Space Force is talking about you know setting up their their first base. Right, all of this activity around the moon. So the question is, okay, the Outer Space Treaty says that countries can't seize territory or claim territory on a celestial object, but we're going to say that there's safety zones. Right. And we're going to define what those safety zones look like that say at least, hey, uh, you can't kind of land on top of our existing thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and depending on the operation, may need to be a larger or smaller safety zone. But to me, this goes back to your earlier question. What does it really mean for the countries to respect the Outer Space Treaty? And I think this is their way of maybe not homesteading, but something similar where it's like, okay, if our U.S. company has landed there, nobody land within a mile, right, or a kilometer or 10 kilometers or whatever uh, makes sense. Um, but they haven't gotten everybody on board. The Russians, the Chinese have not signed on to the Artemis Accords. So it's largely the Western governments right now that are debating um, sort of these standards. Uh, but it's a small club, right? I mean, yes, lots of people can send robotics to the moon, but the only people with a human-capable uh, space program today are China, Russia, and in a tomorrow, thanks to SpaceX, the United States, right? So there are only three players, at least when it comes to human settlement, that are in the game, right? So it's a very small universe and, you know, uh, figure that the Europeans are highly aligned with the U.S. And effectively, you have the West, Russia, and uh, China as the three players, right? So this is going to be the really interesting thing it's, to your it's point the, earlier. It's the same game. Yes. If, if, every, if everybody comply, a whole 193 <laughs> or 195, but the reality is three matter. Right. Right. 
And there'll be four soon, which will be the Blue Origin, and there'll be another U.S. company that has these capabilities. And we'll see whether uh, Virgin Galactic is able to get out there as the first European entrant to being able to um, fly and take humans to space, right? So you have a three to five club, and three of those are Western companies. One's the Chinese government, and one's the Russian government. And and Virgin uh, Galactic just had to divest itself some of its assets because right. of positioning. And they're also a, if you remember in the video, the Project Moon Hut classification system, they are more or less, uh, for those who are listening, Project Moon Hut classification system is a way to look at space and break it up into a way that people like me can understand it, don't study these things for years and years and years, is that uh, we've given areas within space a designation. And Earth is one, atmosphere is two, low Earth orbit is three. And SpaceX or Virgin tended to be more of a one and two and aspirationally three objectives. So I don't know if they're a game player, they are one of the future participants. Right. Exactly. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, but that's sort of what's coming together uh, today is, you know, the Artemis Accords and, and how the countries will interact with each other. Because like you said, it's probably going to be multiple players. And the question is, who's going to grow the fastest? Who's going to be making money doing it so this thing's actually sustainable so you can bring thousands of people and not just, you know, five-man scientific team? right, hanging out there, um, we can actually draw the comparison to Antarctica. Are you familiar with the Antarctic Treaty? Uh, it's, bring it up again. It's been, it's, we've done it in our podcast, but this is a good time because it was a little over a year ago. So this is perfect. So, so this is an example, I think, of not how to do uh, governance and development, right? Effectively in the, I think it was the 50s, the uh, countries came together under the UN and said, okay, we're going to have an Antarctic treaty and we're going to say there'll be no commercial development of Antarctica whatsoever, right? And you've got these different slices of Antarctica that the different countries have claimed. Here's the U.S. territory, French territory, whatever, but it doesn't really matter yep. because you're not allowed to mine. You're not allowed to create a city. You can't create commercial activity. And so here we are in 2020, and there's still just a couple hundred scientists hanging out on a few isolated bases, doing research on Antarctica, yep. and there's no opportunity for it to really become something, right? For it to develop economically or to build cities or to do anything interesting. So you could do science, you can visit, and that's about it, yep. right? So um, this was pre the Outer Space Treaty where they said, nobody can claim a celestial object. So we've avoided that mistake, right? Where we had all these national claims and then sort of a ban on any commercial activity. We've almost got the opposite situation, right? Where there's no territorial claims, but there's already in law recognition that private enterprise can exist in space, right? And if you were to ask Bezos, he gave an amazing talk um, at, in Austin at, uh, the uh, the space conference that uh, Rick Tomlinson puts, puts on. Yeah, he want, he's, yeah. he's asked me to speak there three times, <laughs> and each time I I've said I, I don't know if I can make. It. So he has me on the agenda. I think for this year again. 
but I right. don't know if I'll be able to make it. So we'll see. New, new Worlds. So yes, New, new Worlds, worlds yeah. is a beautiful conference every November and focuses on settlement of space. Yeah. So not just aerospace, satellites, and low Earth orbit, but real settlement stuff, right? And Bezos gave an amazing speech where he basically said, look, guys, the moon can be the new industrial base of the world, right? As people grow in wealth, they don't want these very, very toxic um, manufacturing processes in their backyard, right? The West has outsourced them to Asia. Asia is in the out process right now of outsourcing them to Africa. When the Africans get rich enough, they're going to want to outsource it somewhere else, right? And so the, the world is headed towards um, having residential zoning, if you will, right? Where it's going to be more and more difficult to, to do industrial processes over, the, over time. But the moon has very, very few of those problems. It doesn't have neighbors. It doesn't have a water system you can pollute. It doesn't uh, have an air or an atmosphere you can pollute. You could do mining and effectively have no environmental side effects on our beautiful planet down here, right? But still do the industrial processes that the world needs to exist. Like you and I are both using a computer right now that includes rare earth elements. Yeah. And somebody had to mine those rare earth elements, right? And you can push it out of your jurisdiction, but it just goes to another jurisdiction, right? And so in the long term, I think he's right. I think the moon is an ideal place to build commercial and industrial operations at enormous scale over time and have those products delivered to the earth. It's close enough to easily and realistically do that. The gravity well of the moon is shallow enough energetically and cost-wise to easily send things off of the moon. And so you can do manufacturing and processing there. I think that's where we're headed and it's going to be very interesting to see that roll out when you have the first Amazon factory on the moon, right? Um, but to your point is that's not necessarily exciting to have one dominant monopoly. Here's the Amazon factory. Here is the SpaceX facility, right? If that's all that happens, uh, the moon is you know, going to be an industrial base, but it won't be much more. And so I want to move into number five, the first companies and distributed organizations. This brings us to your blockchain. Right. So I love the moon hut. I love the Moon Hut uh, idea because it's about building a community, right, of people and companies and organizations that will be able to work there, collaborate together, share space, um, share resources in a way that, you know, if you're only on the Amazon campus or you're only on the SpaceX campus, you're not going to have the opportunity to do, right? And so what I would propose is open source ought to be a foundation, right? Um, that we're not getting tied down by the shackles of copyright and patent like the world has on earth, but using open source where most of software development today and, and increasingly hardware development is headed towards open source because you can innovate so much faster, right? If we figure out a better way to produce something or you know, a, a, an important innovation for surviving on the moon, you want that to propagate in the community as fast as humanly possible, right? You want everybody else to have access to that, 
right? And open source is, is really the way to, to give that um, traction and means of which, moving quickly. Which is a, fundamentally why we are not, we don't say we're one country. We are a group around the world who are trying to make this possible. And it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what country or religion or belief structure you have. If you want to help us achieve a box with a roof and a door, NASA named it, uh, a moon hut. And, we, and the reason we chose moon hut, I don't know if I've shared this with you, we chose uh, the, the moon hut was because settlement and colonization have very negative term uh, references to individuals around the world. Mm. When you settle something, you take it. When you colonize, you take it. But the moon hut is a home. And what we're doing is creating a home on the moon. Right. I, don't know, I don't know if I ever shared that with you. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I, I sort of shy away from colonization. Um, though it is it's unique in space where there literally is nobody to take the land from. And so you do have more of a true clean slate, right? It isn't through force. It isn't through conquering, like in the conquistadors in South America. It isn't because of disease and, you know, uh, genocide like it was in North America. But it really truly is an open frontier. Uh, but yeah, to, to avoid those loaded terms, you want to build houses. You want to build a community. You want to build an open society on the moon. That, I think, makes a lot of sense. Right. Which, which and, is no different than the internet. I'm not going to say no different. There's a lot of similarities. The International Space Station is a collaboration between multiple parties sharing resources, sharing right. and surviving together so that right. for the betterment of uh, Earth. Right. And my, my proposition is that that success will grow and be much more sustainable than all the government... Uh, glamour projects, right? Um, the Chinese could spend a lot of resources and they could build a big facility on the moon. But if all it does is government research, it's not going to grow and it's not going to be interesting. Um, but if you set up an open community where people can produce, where they can get property rights for what they create, um, if they can open source the technology, and what we've seen is there's a revolution going on in open source around combining property in open source. This has largely been led in the case of blockchain, where tokenizing open source gives you a way to monetize that open innovation that you create. So as people use it, they're consuming those tokens, they're creating value in a way where anybody in the world can participate in that prosperity. So that's been a fascinating trend for me to watch the last 10 years. And as that's grown into all sorts of different industries, you effectively have a way to make open source pay for itself, right? Uh, and that was always the criticism of open source as well. You know, it doesn't pay the bills. It, it may be great best practice, but it doesn't pay the bills. All of a sudden, thanks to these blockchain systems, it can pay the bills. Right, and it has a built-in mechanism to support its own development. Right, and this gets to distributed organizations. Right, these are ways of voluntarily working together that don't have the overhead of a traditional company. 
and don't have the overhead of a traditional governance hierarchy, and you have very, very easy opt-in and opt-out. Well, that system's not working well for me. I'm going to switch to this other one, right? And, and so just uh, I know what blockchain is, and I understand the, the construction of it. Step back a second, just because you went very quickly, and there are people who I'm assuming, so assume I'm that person. Explain to me your perception of blockchain, how it operates to some degree, and then delve into the overlap and the hierarchy and how it will facilitate, because I think there's a big jump there. And I got it, but I don't know if everybody else is going to get it. Sure. So blockchains at their heart are four things, or they, they typically have four features. So they're open source, usually a piece of software. Um, they're peer-to-peer, -peer, so there's no special central party that, that runs it. Anybody can run the software. Anybody can download it, right? And you know, send tokens, send value, engage in the functions of the software. Um, the third aspect is it typically has this distributed ledger, right, that keeps the records, an honest record of who owns what in the system. So let me just add to that. A distributed ledger is a recording of transaction that's happened and it's duplicated in so many different places that right. you can't go in and make an edit and therefore make it truth. There, right. This means that it's almost written in stone. So to give clarity, if in fact today I went into a company and changed the books no one might know about that. But if every time I make an adjustment to the book, I send it out to 2,000 other locations, but I don't know where they all are. Just randomly put them out there. If I make an adjustment here, oh, no, no, I, I don't know where to fix all the others. So what happens is there's no way to, at least today without a quantum computer, we're, no, we're not able to modify that record so that it would be considered truth. So right. the truth is distributed across ledgers. Exactly. Everybody okay. has hopefully, hopefully I said that well. That, that's a perfect description. Everybody has a copy of the ledger. Everybody can see the accounting book. And so you make that change and try to send it out. Well, nobody else is going to include that change in their copy unless it validates, unless yeah. it checks out, right? So where does this come in? Where, this was, comes the, where in, was the fourth one? Or did you want to? So yeah. open source... Open source peer-to-peer -peer uh, distributed ledger. ledger. Yep, it's uh, it's got it's peer-to-peer. -peer, it's open source. It's distributed ledger, and it's tokenized. Tokenized. Yeah. This is this is the brilliance of Satoshi's original invention with Bitcoin. Was it wasn't a centralized company running the servers? There was a reward every ten minutes, every block, to the miners that were securing the system. So the software pays for its own hardware. It's like the program has its own checkbook and it's cutting a check every 10 minutes to the people securing its functions. That was the brilliance. Then you didn't need a central party. Then you didn't need a middleman involved. That's why all the attempts to do digital currency before Bitcoin failed is because they were all run by a central entity and the central entity had to follow certain laws or you know, got hacked or whatever the problem was. But once you made it open source, 
And once it was tokenized, it could pay for itself and it could exist globally, regardless of jurisdiction and everything else. So, so what does this mean for governance on the moon? We're talking about land titles. Who owns what? You want an honest way of recording that, but we don't need a county municipal land registry, right? Uh, and a guy sitting there with, with a book or a, a private accounting system, we can build these systems open source. What does it mean for ownership of objects and robots and all the things that will operate on the moon? All of those property records could be managed on a blockchain at a fraction of the cost and with total honesty and transparency that most of the people in the world would envy because most of the record keeping systems are censored, manipulated, corrupt, and they can't trust them, right? So if you want to create prosperity, you need the rule of law. And here I'm not talking about law in a state sense, but you need predictability and to be able to depend on the records and the process that you signed up for. So let me take a jump and I know you have more. If in fact, just uh, as a blockchain question more than it is a, it's an accounting blockchain type question. Within blockchain, there are rules set for what is considered a viable transaction or what is considered a viable, um, yeah, viable transaction. How was that set so that, and the reason I ask it is, you're on the moon, this is your property, or you buy this, or this is your robot, and you can do certain things with that asset. In, on the earth, you buy an asset or you own an asset, you record it with a local municipality, you register with a license authority, you uh, secure it through uh, contracts, yet they're all different and they have governance laws that are different. For example, in the, uh, there's common law and then there is the English, um, it's not English law, it's uh, French is no. civil law, yeah. Yeah, civil law. Yeah, so that, for example, in the United States, uh, in Britain, you have a history of predicated decisions that were made to get to a certain point and you refer to the most or the historical records in other countries you do not follow that you have a set of standards and you always go back to the standards right and no matter what the precedences are it always goes back to that original precedent so my question is how is this set up so the beautiful thing like this is it's opt-in and opt-out so when you load the software on that robot, you can say, I want the uh, records of the solar panels it creates, right, as it rolls across the surface and takes this material and prints out solar panels. I want all those records to be written uh, to the blockchain, this particular blockchain, and publish that record here. And all of these other programs will, will validate against that, right? So you have the option to pick whatever system uh, you want, and it's done on an individualistic basis. And if any of those systems prove unreliable or too expensive, you can simply update the software in the robot to change uh, the system that you're using. So it's really driven by the individual. And I really, I want to touch on the common versus civil law. Um, this is probably one of the most important things that we can talk about here is the reason I love I, I'm hopeful I'm, 
I don't know. Did you send me notes in advance? Is that <laughs> it? <laughs> no, we're just, I missed we're, them. <laughs> we're on the we're on the same wavelength. It's great. Um, common law is like you said, set up by all these times that conflict was resolved by a court. Right? Somebody had this problem. The court decided this is how we're going to treat that edge case. Right? Because maybe there wasn't a law uh, covering this exact scenario. Right? My my animal wandered onto this other person's. Uh, property, you know, uh, what, what happens with that and my animal causes some damage, who's responsible, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so all that history of court precedents provides the body of how laws are interpreted. But I, li I like to sum it up this way. Common law is the presumption that you are free to do whatever you want unless it's prohibited by law. And civil law is the presumption that you need permission for everything unless it's permitted by the state. So if you look at the economic outcomes of civil law versus common law jurisdictions, hands down, common law countries are the wealthiest on earth. You look at England, you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, you look at Hong Kong, you look at Singapore, you look at the United States, you look at Canada. I just listed all common law jurisdictions that are very, very well off. And you compare those to similar civil law jurisdictions, they're much less off. Because I see this as an investor all the time. I go to a common law jurisdiction and innovators are just building. They're just, they're, they're going and doing it and they didn't ask anybody's permission to build their new website or build their new software. I go to civil law jurisdictions and you know what entrepreneurs brag about? They brag about how quickly they can get government approval for what they want to build. Oh, it's only going to take us two years because I know that one minister and we go to breakfast every Sunday and you know I, got a, I can get the special permission. Nobody in Silicon Valley is asking for permission, <laughs> right? But I go to civil law jurisdictions and that's their reality. So civil law jurisdictions are always years behind because it doesn't matter how good their entrepreneurs are, they have to ask for permission versus as long as you're not hurting anybody, you know, you're not using any force or fraud, build whatever you want, right? And as it gets bigger, it's going to become regulated, okay, but there's no permission to start. And so civil law jurisdictions tend to be years and years behind common law jurisdictions because they're really watching the common law jurisdictions they're allowed to run ahead and then they're lobbying their government and saying, give us permission, give us permission, let us, let us do that too. So, right. so maybe uh, I could jump in. Isn't Germany common law? Germany is is more of a civil law. Um, most of the European Union is civil law. The UK was always the odd man out because they were the only one with common law in Europe. And eventually that proved irre irreconcilable as well, well with many other things and they spun out, right? Um, Swiss is is actually a third type that's not often talked about, but it's principle-based, right? If you go to Switzerland and you look at their laws, it's like two pages. Like, here's the principles. And we'll negotiate with companies based on these principles and come to a contractual arrangement. Like, you can literally talk to the regulator in Switzerland and cut a deal. Okay, this is how you're going to treat this particular thing. Yes, we agree with that. Here, we'll sign a contract. You're good to go. And you have very great certainty in Switzerland about how, how to operate, right? You go to Europe and there's a 500 page manual, 
where they've tried to articulate every possible scenario and exactly how that will be treated. But that's a lot tougher to operate in. You go into the U.S. and you can operate, but you know regulation is done through enforcement, right? The SEC, for example, is an enforcement agency. If you do something they didn't like with securities, they're going to come crack down on you. And all of their uh, guidance is basically enforcement. Who who did they hit? for getting too close to the compliance line, right? Um, but that can be difficult to, to work with too. I think out of the three, principle-based, common law-based, or civil law-based, Switzerland by far has the best system for knowing how to operate, but not needing necessarily a large bureaucratic entity to give you permission. Okay, that's what I was trying to get to find the where you were coming from on this because you, you named the wealth and the wealth countries you said had one type of law, yet the what type of law they, they the Swiss have a different law. Why hasn't that become the precedent? Does it not grow companies as organizations as fast? Does it not have the same flexibility? Is there something missing in that? They structure? came they came along too late. Okay. The Swiss constitution is from eighteen forty eight. And they largely didn't participate in the settlement or colonization of the New World. So there aren't a bunch of Swiss colonies or former Swiss colonies, like there are British former colonies and French former colonies that we can compare. And so even though their system has produced more wealth per person than anywhere else on earth, it's largely isolated to Switzerland. Right. And but they got effectively the learnings of everything up to 1848 when they created their constitution. You look at their system and it's it's very local. Most of the decisions are made by the municipalities. Even immigration is done on a canton by canton basis. The canton is their uh, state. Don't they also have six different or eight different uh, groups that that control not the same way as, for example, the United States or Europe, where there's a parliament body, but they've actually broken it up into six or eight different groups that make decisions. Right. Well, you have 26 cantons, and they all compete on most of the laws. And there are very few federal laws in Switzerland. Most of them are made at a local level. So if you like the better treatment in Zurich or Zug, you move a few miles and you can change your jurisdiction. So it's created this incredible competition between all of these small jurisdictions inside Switzerland. And so you can see where the most uh, prosperity flows and then the other cantons tend to emulate those successful policies. Uh, for example, uh, in the blockchain ecosystem. I was just going to ask, the blockchain ecosystem yeah. <laughs> is, mir is mirroring yeah. this type of the money goes and the individuals go, the organizations go where they contribute and get the most value. Right. So there's a reason half the world's blockchain companies are in Switzerland, especially the foundations and the protocols. Uh, because of that principle-based law we talked about, they can get clarity on their regulatory treatment without having to wait for a law like the civil law jurisdiction and without having to fear um, a crackdown or, or enforcement like in a common law jurisdiction, they can have legal clarity uh, with, with very, very high certainty in Switzerland. So Zug Switzerland, Z-U-G, Zug Switzerland 
is, is sort of the preeminent leader in this, this crypto valley that started in 2014 when Ethereum and the other blockchains started moving there. You know, they've been the home to gold globally for, for years. You know, a majority of the world's physical gold is custodied within 25 kilometers of Zug, right? They've got the friendliest laws, the most predictable governance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So people go where they're treated well, right? And so there's a lot we can learn from these type of systems that empower local municipalities, that keep decision making at a very small level so that you can have competition and you can have opt in and out. I think the ultimate version would be where you get rid of the imaginary lines. And it doesn't matter if you live in the neighborhood there or the neighborhood over there, you can pick all your service providers and they have to compete, not just jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but having governance in multiple governance options inside the same jurisdiction would be the ultimate way to really see this flourish. And I think we've seen examples of that here on earth. So, uh, and I'm going to, that's kind of the question I want to get to because I'm thinking of a space environment. And if I, my ownership, my positioning is that I am with X uh, law basis and I have followed that, but I decide that Y is better but the person next to me is in a Z configuration, could I be infringing on that person's rights in governance where they would say, no, 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 I'm, uh, you, you're infringing on me, but I'm not infringing on you in essence because the, the laws are not equal. Mm. That's a great question. Um, effectively, you're talking about um, competition and collaboration between different jurisdictions and how do you res resolve conflict when you have different rule sets in the exact same environment so i'm thinking right. of a colony uh, a, a group of people on the moon i i abide by a you abide by b you abide by c and we say no 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 you can't do that to me and the other one says no no according to my <laughs> my program, my my foundational beliefs, I can right. do that to you. Right. So the way that they solve this in Switzerland, and I think makes the most sense, is you're going to have agreements between the jurisdictions. And those, because conflict is expensive, right? So the most expensive thing is conflict, right? Physical conflict, violent conflict, you know, even just business fights are expensive and, and courts and everything are very slow typically. And so, you know, uh, to avoid that, the much cheaper option is to have agreement ahead of time between the different jurisdictions. And this is easiest where there's no tragedy of the commons, right? Where there is no shared resource and it's most difficult where there are those, those shared resources, right? So if you can track ownership on a very granular basis and it's very simple to transfer and sell and use, um, then you have very little conflict, right? And the higher those barriers are, the more difficult it is to collaborate. You know, so I think what you're gonna see, like you see in, in Switzerland, is you're going to have you know, effectively uh, resolution of conflict between uh, the cantons and the different jurisdictions by saying, okay, you know, here's the rules in which we recognize and have reciprocal treatment, right? This is often called reciprocity. Uh, reciprocity is, you know, in the United States, for example, different states have lots of different laws. Um, 
and how do you treat that? Well, um, having reciprocal laws in the other state to recognize other state laws is how it's solved today. So I uh, own a gun in Texas. I can go to 35 other states in the United States and have the same treatment for, say, I have a carry and conceal um, uh, license in that state, right? Maybe I'm a security uh, involved in security or something like that. You know, I can go to any of those 35 states and it's treated the same way, right? But if I go into one of the states like New York or California that doesn't recognize those laws, then I have to go live under their jurisdiction. The I can understand in space that you would like to have this, not you, or the, the structure you're planning or thinking about allows this flexibility but I'm still challenged by it's easier on earth. I don't know. Let me give you a different way to approach it. The reason the United States has 110 as an energy uh, is our 110 for our outlets is because it was invented first. Right. And years later, 220 came about, which was a stronger, better configuration for energy usage. The challenge is already millions or maybe today's dollars would be billions of dollars had been spent on the infrastructure in the United States. Therefore, so much was invested and vested, meaning it was uh, organizations had said, this is our way of delivery, that they could not change it to 220. Mm-hmm. What's not to say that on the moon, let's use the moon, or within the space mirth between moon and earth, and there are configurations, uh, people living in space, what's to say that we won't end up with a similar type of, we didn't get the best. We ended up with all of these different groups. They're sitting right next to each other. We couldn't make all of these models work. So we created so many different agreements. And now we have 75,000 agreements because, <laughs> because he, David has one and Karen has another and um, Yumi has another. And they're all living in the same space. So we have this whole book, which becomes more like, uh, civil law. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, I would you know what s- I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. But the reason I wouldn't worry about it is because of network effects. Network effects tend to concentrate things into a handful of options because yes, I could set up my own radio tower and have my own, uh, you know, theoretically write my own telephone service, right? Or cell tower. But if I'm not on the same frequency or using the same network as the hundred million people I want to call, it's effectively worthless, right? Right. Um, and, and this is the same with internet technologies, right? It's why Microsoft still dominates enterprise. It's not because the Microsoft operating system is the best. It was around at the time, enough people adopted it, IBM picked it up early on, and all of a sudden they had the network effect. So if you wanted to live in enterprise in the office world, you had to have Microsoft, right? Um, this is a great example of where we see, we see changes with each generation of technology. So for example, I remember in the 90s, when 90s and the 2000s, everybody says, oh, well, one day Linux will outcompete Microsoft on the personal computer. And it never happened. But guess what? When the next generation of technology was built, mobile phones, 
it was the Android operating system, which is based on Linux, that became the most popular, had the best defaults, was largely adopted. Now, 80% of the world's phones operate on Linux via the Android platform, right? It won that next generation. So yes, there are sunk costs, um, but you know, having the freedom to choose is the key. Do I don't, I say, I don't think, we had, I don't think the way you just said it and the, what we've just translated is a freedom to choose because the first individuals who get there, who set up the structure and it's on the blockchain and the, and we're on the moon and we don't have the same borders. We don't have the same constructs. So we're all with each other. And I say, look, I'm going to use my robot on this blockchain and I'm going to use my house on this one. And I'm going to take advantage of the best. However, it could end up being a Microsoft position where I've actually kind of have to do this one because everybody else is doing it, even though it is not the most opportune. Right. Yeah. You're not going to have perfect choice and you're not going to have perfect granularity of choice, but I would propose to you the most important thing is competition. I would, I would take two or three choices over today. I have effectively zero choice, right? I've got regional monopolies in the U S things are highly regulated. Uh, in many services that I consume, I have zero choice. I have basically one, one choice, right? And that's usually an outflow of political or, political or regulatory power that some company has exerted. What I like about these blockchain systems and open source systems is there's nobody with special privileges. All of the peers are equal. All of the peers can participate in all of the functions of the network. So I don't get into a situation where we're using that particular system because somebody's cousin was, you know, uh, at the municipal court, right? And his brother is selling the software, right? The users have uh, the ultimate power and authority in the system and the governance is fully distributed, I think is the real key to get these benefits of competition and choice uh, going forward. Right. So, so let me let me throw something out because I'm I'm still I hear you, I hear completely what you're saying, but I've got a I've got a timeline building in my head, and I'm saying landing first group set up. In order to be able to play, you need to be in our system because if you were the only one in the system, or you're not wealthy enough, you didn't have enough influence. So therefore, so can you do me a favor and let's just assume it's the moon because it's Project mm -hmm. Moon Hut. Right. Let's let's. How, give me a timeline and for development of governance. We don't have to go into the development of the moon, but give me a timeline that you see and what's happening in each one of those phases going out, however you'd like to help me. Sure. So let's start with, say it's 10 years from now. Elon okay. has uh, built out, uh, SpaceX has built out the Starship. There is now a reliable means of reaching the moon and the first hundred people are ready to go and set up um, the moon hut, right? The first houses on the moon, or maybe it's an even smaller number, but you know, I think there's a power in having enough people and experts and redundancy, you know, and having a good number of people. So let's say it's a hundred people, they go on the starship and they land on the moon. Okay. Well, they've brought with them a, collection of robots and some of the first things they need to do are mine ice to get rocket fuel and air and 
uh, water, et cetera, et cetera, right? Okay. Um, so they set up and under the Artemis uh, Accords, they've got a 10 kilometer safety zone and they've, you know, uh, set down in Shackleton's crater and they're going to go mine some of those 8 trillion tons of ice that we've been able to detect with satellites uh, that orbit uh, yep. the moon, right? So, okay, great. They show up. Um, maybe some of them are all part of the same company. Uh, maybe they're a series of independent organizations. Some of them want to mine the ice, but some of them want to build robotics. Some of them want to, you know, uh, test uh, antibiotics or medical treatments or manufacturing processes uh, like made in space that are doing fiber optics in space, which is a really interesting uh, use case in microgravity. Um, so let's say we've got four or five of these these companies and organizations. Um, and the choices that they make, and what I'm, what I'm saying is I don't think you want this to be a top-down process. I, I agree with you. I'm just trying to get a framework. Project Moon Hut has four phases of development. Right. Uh, and in here, so we've got, to, we've got 100 on the moon. You're obviously going to be on it, so I don't even have to worry about having to talk to you anymore. <laughs> uh, but you're going to be on it with your family, so that takes up uh, several people. So now it's 96. Okay. So, oh, no, it's 95. You have five, three kids? Okay, it was 95. Then it was, you get off and everybody there gets onto a system because it makes it easier that we all can communicate, we can exchange, and maybe there are a few different variables, but overall we're trying to be able to communicate with one another. Sure. Right. Yeah, you're going to have satellites that need to transfer the data. You know, mm -hmm. we're not going to build new systems day one because we've got this huge industrial base on the earth and all of the software and communications software that they've produced. So we're probably making choices about which of those systems to pick. Right. Right. And we're using them there on the surface, whether it's, you know, open source like signal for the communications. Right. Um, and we pick a system like that and, you know, people can also be using, you know, WhatsApp and they can also be using other systems. They're, it's not like we have to pick one, right? Because we're going to be bringing it from Earth. But more right. mine is, mine is, is a, a construct that the people or the groups, the organizations that make it there first, have the ability to redefine and position governance and that governance model, just like coming uh, the, the landing or securing of any land on earth, tends to come structured wise from the people who landed there. Right. So as we talk about any society. So if in fact, Elon Musk lands there and Elon Musk brings with Americans primarily or the American structure, you're probably going to see more of an Americanism uh, doctrination than you would see of another. How does blockchain and governance, and how does it make that happen? I mean, where do humans change? Where do they become fundamentally different so they act <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I, is there, do they go, is there a shield, like a little plate that they go through in space and they come out on the other side, they love each other? Or do they bring their habits, their beliefs, their everything right. with them? Wherever we go, there we are. So my question right. is, how do we reach, and I'm, I'm teasing you, but how do we reach your utopia, the Johnson utopia? Well, I think we recognize first that it won't be a utopia. 
And, oh, come on. You're going to be yeah. there. You're going to be the party guy. You're going to make everything happen. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it will be the most prosperous place on the face of the earth. That doesn't mean there won't be problems or drama or human issues. But what's so powerful is the incentives that are set. Is the incentive to patent things as fast as I can and be the first one and the only one that has to license these things to other people? or will be the expectation is that I'm going to open source this and anybody that wants to license it from me can do so without friction and free to use without permissions. But why right? do I have to even patent it? Why can't I just say, I don't care what you do because I'm right. not on earth. And uh, it's interesting because you actually said we'll be the, it'll be the most profitable place on earth. Prosperous. prosperous place on earth, but yet we'll be in the moon. So it's interesting that you said that. Uh, right. So what, what's to say that I even have to follow this governance model that you put in place? Well, in your example, it's a person on earth taking no, no, advantage of the technology. No, no, I'm saying I'm going to the moon yep. and I no, want, no longer want it. I don't need to pay attention to you. I'm, I'm in, I'm 5,000 kilometers away from you. I'll do my own thing. I don't have yeah. to pay attention to anything that you're doing. And I, and if I steal something from you, that's my uh, prerogative and I don't want to put it on your play with the blockchain and I want my own laws and regulations. Sure. What's to so, make it say that it'll happen? I mean, we're going to this title, the promise of the title governance of space is set the direction for the next 500 years. Where are we going? Right. We're going to a society where things are voluntary, where they're opt-in, opt-out, where they're open source, where they're permissionless, um, where we have privacy uh, baked in, um, where we can address some of these fundamental issues that we've run into on Earth and we can emulate the best practices. To answer your question, you don't have to follow except for you're in an ecosystem that includes the earth and all the companies and individuals and economies you're dealing with are under an old set of rules, right? So there will still be a connection, but I think the fact that you can have a change in the rules, that you can have a change in governance will attract lots of people to this new frontier because it's an opportunity to have a clean slate. Right. And people are going to run lots of different experiments. That's the point. I don't have all the solutions. I don't have all the answers. What I want is a free marketplace for people to try different solutions and let the market take care of picking the best ones over time. So that's, a, I don't know if you've read Seven Eves. Yes. Okay. So the, at the end, uh, those of you who haven't read the book, I'm bringing up a book. I don't read books this long that often, even though I wrote one that's that big. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very good book about the future of human species uh, in, on Earth, and I won't go into the details, but it, because he's read it. The, at the end, you end up with a divided and completely different set of ecosystems, just as similar to, or not similar, not the same as, but cordoned off like we have on Earth. We grew into another version of a version of Earth where people made their choices. So I guess my, my question, it sounds exciting and I understand this. So can I summarize what you've just said to say that in the next 10 years, let's use your number. I'm 
mm-hmm. we're playing your game, 2030, that in the next 10 years with Project Moon Hut, one of the areas in our governance model, which you have already seen when you saw the video, there is a governance section. And in that governance section, we have this dialogue and we explore the options and we educate and we get to understand new possibilities, which allows for the possibilities of those individuals who get to the moon or live within space to have more choices than they did before. And your hope is that expectation is or expectation is that liberty will supersede. And if it does, it'll be more prosperous for humanity. Right. That's exactly it. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, I think I read it right. I think well, that's how you wrote it, right? Okay. Yeah. There we go. Yes. You were, you were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's, I think from what I'm hearing from you is, and I understand you're trying to find a way to give intentionality to the future, to humankind and through governance. And and what I think that Project Moon Hut is doing is we're saying that's exact same thing. There's governance coordination. We're going to coordinate a new sense of government with a clean slate. However, we are attached within this mirth confines construct. We are going to be tied to earth because our ecosystem will be in the beginning, moon to earth, earth to moon, moon within moon, moon to space, space to earth. So there's going to be this construct of a ecosystem. And if we do this right over the next X years of dialogue, enough people will understand larger possibilities. Exactly. Cool. Is, is there anything you'd like to add? To, and, and I'm saying that's cool because I've, on Project Moon Hut, we've had, on uh, Age of Infinite, we've had uh, one or two other people talk about governance and we're getting more of them. And this conversation is the ability to, to create a new future. And the challenge is that all the individuals around the world come with different constructs. Hmm. what's valuable to them. And I can take COVID, uh, coronavirus as an example. I did a video on this about a month and a half ago, maybe two. And I said, in Asia, they had SARS. 29 countries were uh, affected severely. And living in Hong Kong myself, one of the remnants is that when someone gets sick in the morning, could be a cold, could be anything, they put on a mask they put on a mask to protect their fellow citizens. In the United States, we've seen the exact opposite. I don't have to protect you. I, that's, a, that's hurting my civil liberties. Yet, you don't drink and drive because that's, not against, that's against the law. You can't smoke in public places because it harms other people. This is not a one-on-one scenario with COVID. It does impact other people. So the challenge is do civil liberties or communities who think differently end up getting to the, uh, a smart place? I don't know if I said that well. Right. No, I, I think these are social norms. And to your point, the experience of SARS made it normal to wear a mask in Asian cultures that hasn't yet become a norm 
in North America or Europe, but is becoming a norm because of the COVID situation, right? And I think that's, that's a great point, um, but has less to do with civil liberties and more to do with scale. So you look at the history of London and it was pretty disgusting, right? The, the sewers, there, there was no sewage, right? Um, there was no sewer system. So you had, you know, uh, uh, infection and disease, you know, uh, it, was, it was a terrible place until they said, okay, this is untenable. We have to build a sewage system. They built one of the world's first citywide sewage systems and that allowed London to then scale to the next level of growth, right? And so we may be getting to a new point in human density where we have to go beyond just washing our hands, which wasn't a social norm hundreds of years ago, is now a social norm. You, you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands, right? You, you ingrain this in your children from the age of like one, right? And so the question is, is this a new social norm that's gonna be needed certainly in, in urban areas for the world going forward, otherwise you face these type of consequences. So I think we can develop those social norms and those social norms are much more powerful. Social pressure is much more powerful than any law, right? Because it's self-enforcing. You get a bad look if you cough or sneeze in, in Asia, you're not wearing a mask, you walk into a place, they're gonna hand you a mask. Like yeah. here, put this on, what are you doing, <laughs> right? That enforcement is something you're never going to get from police and cops and jurisdictions and laws. You're going to get that. And, and the same can be said about freedom of speech. I would propose to you that the internet has done more for freedom of speech than all the laws ever passed in its favor right? Because it's a technology that enabled people to simply communicate without a lot of the typical barriers uh, that were in place before. So, you know, I don't and, think we And, and we, have we also to. have a lot of challenges with that too. Sure. Uh, but I would say the good has so far outweighed the bad when it comes to social media or to communications. You know, I mean, the drama gets all the attention, but 99% of it is you just want to talk to your mom. You just want to call your friend. You just want to do life, right? Um, and, you know, we, we get pulled into these extremes, but what about that terrible person that said that awful thing online, right? Like, okay, you know, that, well, that I, exists. I, I'm, I'm thinking about it in the space terms. I'm thinking about mm. it in, in constructs. And when we go to the moon, uh, one of the reasons for the, the race, if you call it that, is that society wants to be able to predicate what happens next right the i i'm if we've not seen anything happen in if we've not noticed anything happen in covid uh, coronavirus which is i think i shared with you nothing like it was in 1918 to 1920 right one quarter of the world's population was uh infected which is 500 million people we're not even close to 2.5 billion people 50 million to 100 people million died that would be the equivalent of 250 million people dying. We are not right. at a reset. We don't love people more. We're not becoming nicer people. As a matter of fact, I think it's brought out the worst in, in, in some societies. So when we go to the moon, I would love to see this governance you're talking about, this ability to be able to make better choices for a larger group happen. And I guess there's not a way to end this conversation. We can go on forever. Is that I'm hoping your participation in Project Moon Hut 
will help us to make some of those better choices. Awesome. Is that a good way to say it? That's a beautiful way to say it. And that, that's exactly what I hope to be involved in and achieve. Because I, I, I love, our conversations are very long. So I love the, the interplay, the, the ability to travel the world. And our audience is global. And I want to make sure that we are really bringing new thoughts to the table. And, and I appreciate, David, you being here with, with me and with us to be able to share. Absolutely. Well, there are going to be trillions of people over the next 500 years that live in space. And, uh, you know, it's the best that thing we can do, I think, is set those early precedents in, in the best way that we possibly can and learn from as much of the history as we can on Earth uh, to avoid some of the state mistakes of the past and, you know, really give people the best prosperity possible. I, I enjoy your friendship and I enjoy the, the way you think. So for all of you out there, I want to thank you for taking the time in your busy day to listen in. And I do hope that you learned something, thought about something differently, that this program has made a difference in your life and hopefully the lives of others as we move forward. As I mentioned earlier, the Age of, uh, in, the Age of Infinite is a Project Moon Hut program. It's part of our series. And we're looking to establish that box of the roof and a door on the moon, the moon hut. So if you're interested in helping us out, if you're interested in working with us, you can go to YouTube. And if you type in Project Moon Hut, you'll see there are two videos there. One of them is a longer video. It's not Project Moon Hut. It is just an introduction. Project Moon Hut has a lot of layers and is very, very uh, deep but it's a way to get indoctrinated and then reach out to us. So for, for you, uh, David, what's the best way, the number, the one way to get a hold of you? Uh, probably the easiest is just to send me a message on Twitter. Uh, my handle is D as in David Johnston with a T E as an echo C as in Charlie D Johnston EC. Okay. And for all of you, if you're interested in getting a hold of me, it's, David at projectmoonhut.org. We also have on Twitter, we have at Project Moon Hut. You can get a hold of me personally also at, at Goldsmith. You can also reach, uh, there will, we have an Instagram, haven't put anything up yet, and it is uh, Project Moon Hut. We also have LinkedIn, Facebook. There's different ways to connect with us, and I do hope that you reach out to us. So with that said, I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.